Good morning, church. How are we doing today? It's good to be with you. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Um, it's been a rich morning already. Uh, can I teach you a word? Yes, this is. Uh, so s- say this after me. Cajon. Cajon. So that's the name of this box that Adam was playing. So later when you talk about it, you won't have to say drum box thing. It's called a cajon. So I just thought I'd let you know that. (laughs) Anyways, um, some years ago, there was a story in the Chicago Tribune about a man named Slots Grobnik. And Slots Grobnik was a Christmas tree salesman. And so it's coming to the time of the year when you can tell a story about a Christmas tree salesman. So one day he, he notices a couple coming in, and, and he, he knew this couple, and uh, they were not well off, you know, nice couple, young, uh, but they're looking for a Christmas tree, and they're, you know, they're walking in, and they're wearing, like, they're not wearing nice clothes. They're kind of, they're dressed in clothes from, like, the bottom of the bin at the thrift store. They're not well off. And so he watches them, and they, you know, they'll look at a tree. Oh, maybe this one. They look at the price tag. Not that one. They look at another tree, maybe this tree, look at the price tag, Mm, can't do it. Eventually, they they come to a a scotch pine. And this tree was pretty good on one side, uh, but the other side was like really bare and kind of scraggly and unimpressive. And so they said, and so they took a look at it. And then they saw another tree that, that was similar. It was, it was good on one side, but the other side was kind of messed up. And so the, uh, the woman whispered something to the man, and um, they went up and they, they grabbed both trees, and they went up to Slots Grobnik and said, uh, could, uh, could we do $3 for these two trees? And he figured, well, they're not going to sell. They're, they're super beat up, so he let them take the trees. A couple of days later, he's walking through the neighborhood, and he happens to pass their apartment. He knows these guys, and he sees in their window a beautiful, thick, bushy Christmas tree. And he doesn't, he's like, Wait, I sold them their Christmas tree. What is that? He, and so he gets a little bold, and he goes and knocks on their door and says, what happened to the trees I sold you? And they say, we tied them together. We, we put them together, the, the bare sides of them together uh, with, with the trunks up against each other. We tied a rope around it, and the, the branches together, they have you know, thick, beautiful branches that actually covered up the rope, and so it looks like one tree. And, and here's what Slots Grobnik said in the, um, in the Chicago Tribune. He said, so that's the secret. You take two trees that aren't perfect, that have flaws, that might even be ugly, that nobody else would want, if you put them together just right, you can come up with something really beautiful. We're continuing our sermon series uh, called Metropolis, the church in Ephesus. We're working our way through these three letters that the Apostle Paul wrote 2,000 years ago to this, uh, this church, this group of Christians in the, in the city of, of Ephesus. Um, and, and so we've been, we're, we're a couple months in now. We're in Ephesians chapter 4. Doug just read our passage. And a couple weeks ago, I promised that Paul was about to pivot his argument, and he never did. And so we, two weeks ago we said that. We, like Paul's, um, the first kind of 
major segment of Paul's argument in this letter that he wrote to the Ephesians is chapters 1 and 2 where he talks about what God has done in history. And then he's ready to go into the next section. But if, if you remember the last couple weeks, chapter 3 was a digression and then a prayer. And so it's almost like the main argument of the, of the letter was kind of put on pause for a second. He, he did a digression about how he's in prison, and then, he, and then he wrote a prayer for the Ephesians. And so now this is the real, the real uh, turning point of the book where we're going to move into the next section of his argument. And, for, uh, and so for the rest of the book, chapters 4, 5, and 6, he's going to be doing a new thing. So the, the hinge point of the book is chapter 4, verse 1. Here's what he says. He says, therefore, and therefore is a clue, therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. That verse is going to be the turning point of the whole book. I don't know how that verse strikes you. Um, that worthiness piece maybe seems a little, like, a little dicey. Like Paul said back in Ephesians 2, uh, by grace you've been saved through faith, uh, and, and it's, not of, it's not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not through works. And so he's been very clear that, that God's favor is not dependent on us, you know, being worthy of it. In fact, we're not worthy, and yet he uses this language here of living a life worthy of our calling, and what are we supposed to make of that? So the Greek word for worthy is axios. Everybody say axios. Yeah. So it's like it's the it's the root of the the word that, um, the word axiom. Um, and it's the word that they used in the ancient world to talk about things weighing the same as each other. So in the ancient world, if you wanted to weigh something, you used one of these scales. Okay, you you know these scales, right? It's like a balance, two plates. Okay, and you load up one side with a certain amount of weight. So if you're, you're like at the market and you want to buy a pound of flour, you'd put a one-pound weight on the one side and it would tip. And then you'd put your, your flour on the other side. And if, if it balanced, you knew that you had a pound of flour. And they would say that the scale was axios. So Paul says, therefore, because, therefore uh, and so... When he says, therefore, he's referring back to everything he said before in this book. Therefore, lead a life that is axios of your calling. Now, what does this calling piece mean? Uh, well, that, that harkens back all the way to chapter 1, verse 18, where he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Okay, And when he says the hope to which he has called you, He's talking about the story of what God is doing in the universe. Everything that he unpacks in chapters 1 and 2 about how God has, uh, has defeated uh, sin and death and, and has uh, torn down the wall of hostility between the races and, um, and how God is creating a new people group for him, a nation of all nations among whom he will dwell like a temple. That's the hope, and that's the hope to which the Ephesians are called because it's this story, this hopeful story, and they're called to participate in that story. So there's a story, and they have this calling to participate in the story. That's chapter 1. Now in chapter 4, verse 1, he's referring back to that. It says, therefore, I beg you to lead a life that is axios of your calling. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, 
for the whole first half of this letter, we've been loading one side of the scale. What goes on one side of the scale is, is your calling. It's this, this, this story that God is calling you into. It's God's work in the universe that you're invited to participate in. And now what he's saying is we're going to start loading the other side. And what goes on the other side now is your way of living. It's, it's your lifestyle. It's the way that you're going to live. And, and he's saying God has done something, something big, something heavy. In response, don't live a lightweight life. Does that make sense? If God is saying, or Paul is saying God has done something substantial, so respond with a substantial life. Paul is not saying we need to be worthy so that God will love us. He's saying God has loved us and invited us into this story, and now our response is to be deliberate and serious about the way that we're going to live in this world. That's true, that's true here uh, when, uh, when Paul uh, is giving commandments now to the Ephesians, and it's actually true most of the places in the New Testament where there are instructions given to Christians. It's about saying, how do we respond to what God is doing? How do we participate in what God is doing? He's inviting us to live an axios life. And so that's kind of the setup for this whole rest of the book. How are we going to live a life? Paul's going to give, for the rest of the book, he's going to be giving instructions. And it's going to be instructions saying, how do we live a life that is equally substantial that is in balance with the amazing thing that God is doing in history. How are we living an Axios life? And so that's, that's where we're going to go for the next, into 2020, for the next uh, three chapters. It's going to be instructions for how to live a deliberate life in response to what God is doing. So here's his first bit of uh, instruction. He says, always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. So Paul is now starting out the instruction portion of his letter. And how he's going to start out is by telling the Ephesian Christians how they're to live together. Notice that word, one and, or each other, right? Be patient with each other. So we're talking about how Christians in Ephesus are going to live with other Christians in Ephesus. It's good to be humble and gentle and patient with non-Christians as well, but that's not mainly what he's focusing on here. And that makes sense given the narrative that we've seen already in, in Ephesians, that one of the big things that's going on in Ephesus is that, is that the church in Ephesus is this bringing together of Jew and Gentile. It's bringing together of, of these different people groups who, who, didn't, who didn't really get along. Okay, like it, it might help to think about it this way. Like think about the Anglophone-Francophone thing in Canada, right? There's a little bit of friction, a little bit of a different values between these, these people groups in Canada. Like take that. And layer on, uh, layer on top of that, a bunch more history, a bunch of bloodshed, and a century, centuries, no, a millennia-old religious tradition of deep disdain and distrust where they'd cross the road and walk on the other side to avoid each other. 
There's a, there's a big rift between these people. Now they're called to live together as the church. How are they going to do that? And so Paul wants to start out and say, here's some instructions for how to do that. By the way, uh, we use the word Gentiles uh, generally when we talk about Jew and Gentile. The, the word for Gentile in the Bible is, is, is ethnos, from which we get like ethnicity. It means the nations. I love I love the discussion today already about about other nations, about Ukraine, right? About uh, John Chow and his journey. Like that that's acting out what Paul is talking about here. This this thing of expanding what God is doing beyond the Jewish people to uh, the nations. But let's be real, that would have led to some friction. And so Paul wants to give them some. Um, some instructions for how to live within that difference. And all he does is he gives them this list of really practical, uh, semi-obvious behaviors. Like, like this list, can we all agree, is not rocket science. Does anyone have trouble understanding like what's on screen here? It's really, it's really a simple list, and yet, and yet, like, how far down the road could we get? Like, how much better off would a church be if we could just truly live this out? Right? It's one of those things that it's simple, but it's not easy. So all I want to do with these verses is, is I want us to just let, let it press on us for a second. So I'm going to read it again. And I want you to think about, think about someone you don't agree with. Think, of, think about someone, uh, another Christian, okay, this is maybe a little dangerous, but who, to you, they just don't get it. You're never on the same page. Okay, so get them in your mind. And I'm going to read the verse again, and all I want us to do is just say what one word or one phrase uh, pierces you. What one word or phrase sticks out to you and, and you say, yeah, I got I to gotta pay attention to that. Okay, I'm going to read it again slowly. You got the person in your mind? He says, always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other. Making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. What word or phrase sticks out to you? For me personally, it's, it's make every effort. Because, because I'll make a little effort. Like if it's not working between me and another person, I'll make a little effort. But to continue to make that effort after a while, you kind of want to give up. What word or phrase is it for you? Would you just take that and, like, if you're taking notes, write it down. If you're, uh, you know, have your phone, maybe put in the notes on your phone. Would you just sit with that word this week? Gentle. Making allowance. Because the truth is, um, 
like Paul has said this thing, he said this thing in Ephesians 3.10. He said God's purpose uh, in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That part of what the church is to do is to stand as a sign of the wisdom and the victory of God. Like, can you imagine if we just lived out, be humble, be gentle, be patient, make allowances because of your love. If we just lived that out, what a witness that would be. Can you imagine how much the rulers and authorities, the forces of darkness in this world would, would tremble? So he says, work for unity. And, you know, that's, unity for its own sake is a good thing, but he actually gives us a justification for why. He says, uh, verse 4, for there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future, there's that language again, the hope to which you've been called. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. For Paul, there's a lot in that verse, but for Paul, if we could boil this verse down, what he's saying is the whole kind of thrust of what God is doing in the universe is a story of oneness, one body, one spirit. It's all, it's, it's not like there's like a, a, a little, you know, segment of the gospel that's for this group of people and, and God did this other thing for this group of people. The gospel, gospel is not segmented. Uh, it's not regionalized. The whole thing is a gathering in of people into, into one thing that God is doing. Paul is saying that the actual thing that God is doing in the universe is about oneness. And, he's, and so he's saying, um, if you're going to live a life of division and arrogance and harshness, you're actually out of step with, with the direction that God is taking the universe. It's like the universe is, is like a symphony of loving oneness. Right? One body, one spirit, one glorious hope for the future. And, and he's, he's kind of saying, you're invited to join the music. Pick up a violin, pick up a saxophone, sit on a cajon. Join the music, sit in the orchestra pit and join the music. Or you can be the person in the third row whose cell phone rings mid-performance. Okay, you get what I'm saying? Like, you can join the music or you can, you can live out of step with the music. You, you can be clashing with the music. Paul's saying, join the music. Work for oneness. Join, join the music of what God is doing in the universe. Now, that's a nice thing. But there's a complication. So 500 years ago, a group of Christians arose called the Anabaptists, and they believed that baptism uh, was meant to be a conscious public symbol of someone's profession of faith. And so they renounced what was at the time the standard practice of baptizing infants. They also believed that being a Christian meant taking the teachings of Jesus seriously, particularly the Sermon on the Mount, okay, and, and, that, and that you had to, like being a Christian meant that you would live out those teachings in your real life, uh, not just on Sundays, and so that led them to engage in society differently. And so they, uh, they renounced the use of violence. They, um, 
They renounced the taking of, of oaths. They believed in the separation of church and state. Okay, other church groups at that time believed in a marriage of church and state. And so the Anabaptists 500 years ago, they made a break from other Christians. Like they were part of what was called the Reformation where the, the Protestants broke away from the Catholic Church, but then they were part of what was called the Radical Reformation where they broke off from the break-off. And they did so because of deep and important convictions, and many of them paid for it with their lives. As a Mennonite Brethren Church, these men and women are our spiritual ancestors. For some of us uh, who come from kind of Central Europe, they might be our biological ancestors. Uh, probably not me. I did some checking, and it turns out uh, in the 1500s in Central Europe, there were so few Filipinos, <laughs> like almost none. And, uh, and that's a shame, but uh, the reason is quite simple. Central Europe in the 1500s had no karaoke. <laughs> but these are our spiritual ancestors. Okay, they, they matter, and we're here today. We stand in line with their, with their tradition, and they have shaped our faith and practice for today. And if we could go back somehow and, and delete the beautiful distinctives of our tradition, delete their contributions to the Christian conversation, and just kind of melt them back into the church, in a way we would have achieved some kind of, like a kind of oneness, and yet we would have lost something, wouldn't we? And if we're honest, that's probably true of other traditions as well. We, we need, like, we need and enjoy the worship music the Pentecostals have given us. Those, those Anglicans, like the, the prayers that they have written down, And so the question that arises is how do we live uh, pursuing oneness within the worldwide church? How do we live with the good oneness of the church and yet also make space for the good diversity of the church? For particularity, for distinctives. More on that in a little bit. Uh, we're not going to talk a whole bunch about uh, verses 6 to 12. There's, there's a bit of a, um, an aside where he, where he uh, does a reference to Psalm 68, this Old Testament thing, and he unpacks it a bit. Um, but I'll just touch down for a second on verses 11 and 12 where he says, These are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. And so we've talked about this passage before. Whose responsibility is it to do God's work and to build up the church? Is it the pastors and teachers and apostles and prophets, or is it God's people? Both? Uh, both. That's true. So how it goes is the pastors uh, 
the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, the church leaders, their job is to equip God's people, including the pastors and teachers and apostles and prophets, to do God's work. And the, the literal translation there is equip God's people for ministry. The word there is ministry. And so we've said this before. We'll say it again. Um, pastors aren't called to ministry. Christians are called to ministry. Okay? Now, pastors ideally are Christians, and so we are called to ministry. You get my point, though. So it is both in a way. But that's, um, but that's the idea. It's the job of church leadership to make sure that not just themselves, but that the whole body of Christians are, uh, are equipped to do ministry. This is why we try and get you into life groups. This is why we, we take seriously our preaching and teaching, trying to help you think Christianly in this modern world. This is why we have things like, like women's and men's events and Christmas tales and the fun fair where we're trying to create space for you to have a touch point with your friends and neighbors as you journey with them, as you serve and minister to them. Okay, we've got got more stuff uh, in the pipeline for 2019 or 2020 that's uh, that's all about equipping equipping all of us because we're all called to ministry and if you've been uh, been here for a couple years you'll know that this that equip God's people is also one of our strategic priorities at South Langley um, and so we took that directly from this verse that we discerned together that God wanted us to grow in that because our vision is not that Dave and Daryl and Brian and Sarah and Adam would put on a really good show and lots of people would come to see it. Our vision is that every week we would send out a couple hundred well-equipped Christians into every corner of Langley, into the neighborhoods and schools and, and workplaces and grocery stores and soccer fields. And, and then in all those places, we would be doing whatever ministry we're called to, that we would be in investing in people's lives, that we would be helping people know and follow Jesus in all of those places. And so that's the, that's the job of church leadership. So uh, what we've got so far is Paul says, church, live together in, in loving oneness. And he says, and within that oneness, some are, some are gifted to lead, and, and it's their job to equip everyone for, the, uh, for ministry. And here's the result. Here's the goal of all of it. So he says, this will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. The goal of all of this is maturity. There's such a thing as an immature Christian. Okay, and, and there's such a thing as a mature Christian. And most people are somewhere, you know, on the continuum. Uh, and, and uh, like, I just invite you to do a check with yourself. When was the last time you took a next step? Like, if the goal is that, like, like I don't think any of us would say that we're measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Okay, if, if that's you, I want to meet you. So all of us are on this journey from immature to, to mature. And unless we're just like Jesus, we're not all the way mature. When was the last time you took a next step? One of the things that we're passionate about here at South Langley is that we're, we're trying to help people take those steps. 
Is it the same for you today as it was 10 years ago? Is your faith the same? Is your relationship with Jesus the same? He continues on, then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like truth. So, children are sweet, um, but they're gullible. Like, as every dad, like every dad and uncle and grandpa knows like you can, it's pretty easy to be a magician when your audience is children. You get what I'm saying? Like, hey, look, I'm going to make this ball disappear. Look over there. Right? They fall for it every time. And Paul's saying that the, there's a similar thing that can happen with immature, ill-equipped Christians that, that they can be deceived. They can, be, they can be swept up with ideas that are unhelpful. That was a uh, first century reality. How much more so in the 21st century in an information age where we're, you know, we're neck deep in new ideas. And it's a tough thing. There are times during, uh, during church history, if you look back, where Christians were led astray by teachings that arose. A big thing in the first century was Gnosticism, okay, this kind of philosophical teaching that rose up. Don't worry, that's, that's too nerdy for today. But You can think about the Crusades. The church started teaching God wants us to reclaim the Holy Land by killing all the Muslims. You can think about the selling of indulgences, Right? All this, this stuff that the Reformation and the Radical Reformation were reacting against, like selling indulgences, you can donate to the church and your sins will be forgiven. People keep sinning and people keep being anxious about their, their sins. And there was a lot of revenue. Medieval churches are beautiful because of that. You could think about the ways today that... that Christianity has been, has been sort of, like, the teachings like, take up your cross and follow me. Whoever uh, loses her, his life for my sake will find it. Have become, Jesus wants you happy and healthy and wealthy. And so it's possible that ideas come into the church uh, that, are, that are unhelpful. That's what he's talking about here. There's also, though, this, this reality that sometimes ideas come into the church that are important and helpful correctives for the church. And so think about, yeah, the, the reformers, the, the radical reformers. They were calling Christianity toward renewed faithfulness to the way of Jesus. You could think about the abolitionists who said, no, the Bible doesn't uh, condone the slave trade. You could think about Galileo and his telescope he said, you, you can look in this telescope and see that the earth is not the center of the universe and the church had to rethink, excuse me, the, the earth is not the center of the universe? What did I say? Anyways. The earth is not the center of the universe. It's orbiting the sun. The church had to rethink the way they saw the universe. And so sometimes there's, this, there's, 
new ideas that come in that are, that are helpful and corrective. Sometimes there are ideas that come in that are unhelpful, malicious, and lead Christians astray. And here's what he says. He says, then we'll, we'll no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. Uh, in, in, the, in other translations, it actually says, we won't be tossed by the waves. The word there is tossed by the waves and blown about by every wind of new teaching. The imagery that he's using there is the imagery of, of a ship. Ephesus was close to the uh, coast of the Aegean Sea. Sailing was an important method of travel back then. Sometimes the sea was calm and sometimes it was rough. So what do you need? You need a, you need a boat that's, that's got, with an even keel. Right, you need a boat that's got a, a strong keel, the thing that goes into the water and keeps it from waving. You need some ballast in there. You need, you need uh, well-equipped sails. And you need a captain who knows how to sail. If you're, and so if you don't have that stuff, he's, he says, if, you, if you're an immature Christian, you can be like you don't have that stuff. You'll be tossed like a cork. You may be blown off course. You may get shipwrecked. But Christian maturity means that we have the resources to navigate the world of ideas in a wise way. That's why it's so important uh, for Christians to continue to grow and to continue to be equipped. Last little bit, here we go. He says, instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Two things to, to point out here. Number one, uh, that phrase, speaking the truth in love, so good. Another one of those phrases that is so simple. But if we could just live it out. Like if we could just live it out. Some of us are really good at the, at the love part, right? We're just... Going to give everyone a hug, open arms. Some of us are really good at the truth part. Like, we're going to tell you what's what. Very few people are good at both. It takes a great deal of maturity and wisdom to be good at both. And we're not talking about, like, I think sometimes we think, okay, should it be, like, is there a ratio? Like, 50% truth, 50% love. 60-40, 70-30. I think what he's calling us to is 100% truth and 100% love. Think about the person that you trust, uh, trust most in the world, the person you feel safest with. Maybe it's your spouse, your best friend, your mom or dad, a brother or sister. That person who you can confess anything to them and, like, you can be really vulnerable. And you're not scared because you're bound with this deep, loving oneness. You can confront them on things. Say, I, I, think, I think you need to adjust some things in your life. And you're not, you're not scared to do that because you're bound by this deep, loving oneness. See, see. Truth and love, actually, when they're at their best, they're working together and enabling each other. What if we could speak the truth in love? 
Paul's vision is that the church would be like a couple hundred of those relationships. Can you imagine the tone there would be in, in this space if it was a couple hundred of those relationships? Speaking the truth in love. And then the last thing. Notice what he says. He says, uh, but speaking the truth in love, instead we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. And then he continues on. All through this passage, Paul uses the imagery of a body to talk about the church. And here, in verse 15, he says, the head of the body is Christ. Remember earlier in the chapter, um, he was listing all those ones, one faith, one baptism. One of the things he said was, one Lord, and the Lord is Christ. Earlier, I asked the question, how do we live with both the good unity and the good diversity of the church? And let me answer that question with another question. How do Australians keep track of their cattle? How do Australians keep track of their cattle? Most places in the world, if you have a herd of cattle, you build a fence. Uh, you fence off your pastures, and you know they may wander, but they'll never they'll hit up against the fence, and they won't go any further. In the Australian outback, cattle graze over thousands of acres. Uh, it's it's a whole bunch of just punishing terrain. It's not practical to fence in your pasture land. So how do you make sure your cattle don't leave? The answer is simple. You call Hugh Jackman. Get him on his horse, you're good. Here's the real answer. You dig a well. Instead of building a fence, you dig a well. And all of a sudden, your herd of cattle, they will, they will walk around, they'll do their thing, but they'll never wander too far because in the hot Australian sun, they know that if they wander too far from the well, they're going to die. And so all of a sudden, this herd of cattle is held together not by artificial boundaries, but by their mutual connection to the same source of life. The fancy way to talk about it is they're a centered set, not a bounded set. Centered set, they're centered on the well. Bounded set is held in by fences. They're held together by their mutual Connection to the, the, the source of life. Paul says the church is a body. How do you unify a body? How do you, like, like why is an eyeball and an ankle and a spleen, like, what do they have in common? The head. The head is Christ. Paul says there's one Lord. When you think about, and this is ancient kingdom language, right? Think about an ancient kingdom. They have one Lord or one king. When you think about rich, rich aristocrats and and peasants who live on the streets. Think about old and young. You think about small business owners and day laborers and scholars and government officials. What do these people have in common? Oh, they're, they're loyal to the same king. 
See, we Christians are different and diverse in important ways. Anabaptists and Lutherans and Catholics and Orthodox and Pentecostals, progressives, conservatives, high church, low church, missional, attractional. And if the unity conversation is all about where we've built our fences, we will continue to struggle with unity. But maybe, maybe the way that we live out loving oneness in the church is by recognizing that we're all centered around the same head, the same Lord, the same well, Jesus. To, uh, this week, this coming week, is South Langley Church's 55th anniversary. Six years ago, a group of people uh, from what is now Ross Road Community Church um, purchased an acre of land over on 36th Avenue. They built a building, and 55 years ago this week, in that little red church building, they held their first service. They had 17 charter members. Happy birthday, South Langley. Yeah? You can clap. That's fine. 55, right? A few of us have been there, uh, been here since close to the beginning. Most of us joined somewhere along the way. And over the years, a lot has changed. Over the years, we, you know, we've changed lots of, you know, lots of styles, lots of methodologies. We've adapted. We've, we've grown. We've, we've brought in more people, brought in more kinds of people. We're reflecting a wider, uh, a wider swath of the Christian family and, and of our city as well. but we've always retained the center. We, for 55 years, we've been coming back to the same well. We've retained the center of loyalty to Jesus. We've always retained that mission to help people know and follow Jesus. For 55 years, we've done what, what Paul says in Ephesians 3. We've stood as a testament to God's wisdom, a sign to any dark forces in Langley that they are on the wrong side of this battle. And we've done that for 55 years because, like the Ephesian church, we pursued loving oneness through our shared allegiance to King Jesus. I guess what I'm saying is something like what Slats Grobnik said about the Christmas trees. You take a bunch of people that aren't perfect, that have flaws, that might even be ugly, that's what he said, I that nobody, that maybe nobody else would want. If you put them together just right, you can come up with something really beautiful. Amen. South Langley, what do you say we go 55 more? Yeah? All right. Well, we're going to move.